This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to another episode of Einstein and Gogo. I'm Dr. Shane. A huge thank you to the team from Radiotherapy for bringing us through till 11. You're stuck with us now until 12. We're going to give you an hour full of science. In the studio, coughing with me is Dr. Jen. Good morning. Good morning, Dr. Shane. Actually, I was dancing as well as coughing. You were. I can multitask. You can. <laughs> no comment. Chris KP is... Desperately trying not to comment. Well, let me just say that having watched that, you cough really well. <laughs> <laughs> and your dancing was really fun Thank too, you. my friend. Thank you very much. <laughs> yeah, there's love in the studio. Uh, <laughs> these two always give each other a lot of crap, which is good. It's fun. Um, <laughs> I but, look forward to it. <laughs> yes, as do we all. Now, we're going to throw to some science news first up, as we do. We have three amazing guests coming onto the show a little bit later today from the University of Melbourne and uh, Monash University and uh, talking about everything from asthma down to the deepest ocean. So that'll be kind of cool. But let's jump into some news. Dr. Jin, what's been uh, catching your eye this week? I found a paper which really made me think. Oh. Yeah, and didn't oh, hurt God. either. <laughs> it was really good. And I found a paper, some research out of the University of Oxford, which talked about pristine landscapes. You know how there's this, you know, you go on a Facebook and there's, you know, you go wherever and there's always arguments about, you know, this, these pristine yes. places, these beautiful places, and that if somehow we could you know, capture that and, and recreate a world full of these pristine places, mm. then somehow we, you know, things would be better mm. and our world would be better. And this paper looked at um, many years of archaeological data so everything from ancient DNA to microfossils to all sorts of different things and used a whole lot of whiz-bang new computational um, techniques to look at what really is a pristine habitat and do we have any pristine habitats left on this planet. And what they come up with was no. There is nowhere on this earth that wow. doesn't bear the long-term significant um, effects, you know, having been shaped by humans effectively and that we haven't had any truly pristine landscapes for thousands of years. So the old argument always was, that um, prior to the Industrial Revolution, humans had very little effect on the earth Mm. because there weren't very many of them, they weren't very widespread and that it's really only since the Industrial Revolution that humans have made their mark on the planet. Mm. But in this paper they argue that there are four basic periods in which we had massive effects and the first of them was way back in the late Pleistocene, so a very long time ago when humans started to expand across the globe Um, and they argue one of their examples is that as soon as we started losing the megafauna that's when we started having big or when humans started having big impacts. Because that has big flow-on effects. Yeah, exactly, big flow-on effects, everything Mm. from Mm. seed dispersal to all sorts of other ecosystem patterns. The next next big um, event was the spread of ag- agriculture and so things like the fact that now chickens outnumber humans three to one across the globe you know those patterns of chickens mm. and goats and domestication of dogs you know that all started a really long time ago that does worry me <coughs> that number of chickens yeah, yeah that's because a they, lot of they kind of freak me out yeah they're, they're calculating mm. of course they are <laughs> <laughs> so then the third phase was when we started colonizing islands because, you know, initially yep. we didn't make it to islands, yes. but then we did and we took new species with us, so we created these entirely yeah. new mm. ecosystems on every island you can imagine. And then lastly, these early urban societies, which, again, it's you know that's not a recent mm. thing. We didn't start mm. urbanising um, during the Industrial Revolution. It was way before. And one of their examples, which I found fascinating, was forests that are considered ancient, in invert- inverted commas, in France, are just what we created from Roman times. So oh, basically okay. yep. what you see in archaeological... Well, ancient Roman times, right? 
right. Yeah, so ancient Rome had a suite of species and we took them yeah. with us and put them in France and now that's what we consider to be original French. And it's not. It's mm. what we created. So yeah. basically everywhere across the globe, what we see, what, what's, what's thriving both in terms of plants and animals are what we created because mm. it suited us. Does, does the article consider marine environments as well? Is that all consi- you know, <clears throat> part of the not pristinedness? They didn't talk very much about okay. that, no. I imagine mm. that, that some thought has been put into it, but it wasn't a highlight of this paper. But no, the, the, the point of this paper really was to say when it comes to conservation and making decisions about conservation, we need to be more pragmatic. We should be focusing mm. simply on having, mm. you know, clean air and fresh water and not worry so much about trying to get back to this impossible this, this totally original state because yeah. it doesn't exist. We mm. cannot get back to the, an original state where Earth was pre-human impact because mm. it simply doesn't exist. It's, it, it, it's interesting, Dr. Jen. I mean, uh, the, the, the sort of more recent stuff, I can see where our impact is very different to that of other species on the planet. But the yep. early stuff, yep. where essentially we're an apex predator which moved yeah, around, is yep. is just like many other apex predators. You know, yep. if there's a there's a, a predominance of food in this direction, they'll move in that direction, vice yep. versa, and so forth. Um, and so, in that sense, we were kind of part of the ecosystem mm. for a while, yep. and then we started modifying it artificially and i think that's where yep. the real difference occurs so i mean yep. if anything we could try and go back to where we were part of the ecosystem yep. as opposed to modifying it Absolutely. artificially but that, you're right you'd never get back to a point where what was it like before humans well, were we around don't because that's not, we don't even know say, yeah. the point yeah. is we, we can't argue that we want to get back to that stage because we really have no idea no what idea the state what was, like. was. Yeah. and that culmination of so many thousands of years of human impacts have mm. led to it's where a, we are now it's an interesting exercise in psychology i think that mm. that even though we don't really know what it was like and we can't really get back there and we've never really known anything apart from what we've made. We yearn still, for it. We, we're still, yeah, <laughs> desperately yearning that we, we know deep down that we're bad yep. yeah. and we just like to get back to when we weren't bad. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of a desperate... But by pathetic, definition, yeah. we are bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. exactly. So yes. I told you it made me think. Yeah. Making you think too. Oh, jeez, and it's Sunday. <laughs> Sorry, folks, we didn't intend to do that today. We really don't like to make you think in this program, but on occasion... It's Science necessary. does do that, and it's necessary. <laughs> We're not proud of it. Chris KP, let's get them back to where they should be, not thinking. Okay, cat, cat videos. <laughs> no, just... Um, and, and I'm not kidding. <laughs> Hang on, I'm getting yeah, excited. Yeah, yeah, no, no. So seriously, you, you know that... Okay, amongst the great pantheon of cat videos, uh, in fact, animal videos at all, there is a particular subset that I love, and this is when cats do something unco. Are you sure you want to admit this on air? I, I'm not alone. Okay. I'm not alone. Okay. You know, see, you see know. my favourite cat videos are the ones that also involve dogs. <laughs> I'm not a cat person. And they can work, and they can often come together. That's oh, a set that's of the subsets. It's magical. Yeah, you know, when the cat tries to get away or tries to take on the dog or jumps out the window and misses the, the ledge, all the, they're hilarious. If Dr. Ewan was in the studio, he'd be <laughs> yeah. right with me, I can tell you right now. He loves a good dog cat video. <laughs> they're, they're, and, and, and let's face it, most of them are good. Especially yeah. if the cat's not moving by the end. Especially if the dog's a dingo. Yeah, that's yeah. exactly yeah. right. Yeah, D- dingo. Cat anyway, sorry, we, we don't. No, no, that's okay. <laughs> um, because because the well, the reason I I raise that is because there's something delicious. There's lessons, you know, there's pain involved. There's something delicious about an animal doing something that just appears to be not very coordinated or a bit stupid. Because, yeah. again, deep down we assume that they totally nail everything. So funniest home video, kind of. Exactly. Yeah. So, let me ask you this. Picture, if you will, somewhere out on, I don't know, a savanna or a woodland or a grassland somewhere, there's a herd of animals. Let's call them deer for, I don't know, for whatever. <laughs> Can and they be <laughs> antelope if they're sure, on a savanna? Just, I mean, just, I'm just throwing it out there. There's no such thing as a pristine antelope no, environment. There isn't. <laughs> 
Okay, so there's a <laughs> bunch of pristine antelope because you asked, um, the, and they're all. Then there's probably dozens or hundreds of them potentially grazing, and then suddenly, in, in, to, take, to follow that uh, that ecosystem, you know, a couple of lionesses appear somewhere, mm, yeah. and they are immediately visible to the antelope. What do the antelope do? Most of them try and get the hell out of there. Yeah, yeah. And when they do, how come they don't all bump into each other? <laughs> Yeah, this is the question. Teamwork. That, yes. Mm. Well, maybe. So this is the question that a bunch of scientists. Is that what? Sorry. Is that what they call the herd mentality? They're um, all thinking together. Yes and no. Uh, well, I don't know about the mentality, but you are maybe touching on something important. So a bunch of scientists from the uh, the Czech University or Czech University of Life Sciences um, were studying roe deer, and they did this over 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 forty odd days with a range of you know small groups, large groups, individuals, different weather conditions, different times of day, and whatever else, and studying what they what they how they respond to some sort of perceived threat. What they found is that when there isn't a threat known to them, the deer tend to graze in a north south orientation. They'll face mm. north south and they'll eat that way more, generally speaking. And then when the regardless threat appears, of weather, regardless. Yeah, of apparently. I mean, okay. I haven't I haven't read the, the the detailed raw data, but yeah, they seem to cover weather, time of day. Uh, it was a similar seasonal period, like okay. it was over a period of like half a half a year, I guess. So it's not that that tight, I suppose. But they seem to cover on most of those variables. Um, what was interesting is that so they so they're in north and south, but then mm-hmm. when the threat appears, irrespective of where the threat is they will tend to run away north and south. Mm. So there is a risk you might run up the backside of somebody else or vice versa, <laughs> but you're not going to take them out, you know, T-bone them, I guess. You're not going to take them out sideways. Everyone knows where to run. What was really interesting for me was that they they also found that the smaller the group, if they're individuals or pairs, that orientation is much, much less pronounced. Mm. So it seems to be something mm. that's... that's Fewer pure, other yeah. animals to run into. Exactly. They yeah. seem to know that when there's a lot of... You know, okay, I better, I better line myself again. Stay inside the lane here so that if, mm. you know, Johnny Wolf turns up, I'm not going to... You know, be calling up the uh, the insurance agency. <laughs> anyway, yeah. So it looks like the, I don't know how that translates to other animals, and that's the other thing. Is it something that um, that is you know that translates to the savannah and to antelope? Does it work for mobs yeah, of kangaroos? Because what about birds? But what about birds flying in the sky and fish swimming yeah. in schools? You know, because there's all that study looking at you know they basically keep an equal distance from themselves to their nearest neighbour. Exactly. So whatever their neighbour does, if they do the same, then you know the whole flock. So that's what. Yeah, I reckon there's. A, I reckon that's the next level down. So they, yeah. they they are into the right direction. So at the moment of bang, we're out of here. We're yeah. okay. But yeah. once they're moving, there's going to have to be micro-control uh, yeah. Yeah, based on your immediate neighbours, I assume. But there's, there's an interesting thing with birds, because in birds there's a, there's a very real and immediate aerodynamic benefit to mm. flying in certain formations. Yes. Yeah, for sure. But, but antelopes running yeah. in a group, well, uh, you know, yeah. uh, you wonder how that works. I mean, and, and especially with the weather, as you said, Dr. Jen, I mean, mm. you know, you roll up, you're an antelope, you, you're getting into the group and there's a real nasty northerly <laughs> and everyone's facing south and you go, God damn it. <laughs> I'm also I've got to face you. north. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, I'm thinking this is why, why hunting, hunting in packs makes sense. You just, yeah. you guys take out the south end, I'll come around the north end. <laughs> yeah, We're right. going to be fine. Whoops. But- <laughs> That's but there's the, a strong selective pressure in in having this behaviour because mm, if you mm. all run into each other and all fall in a heap, Much you're going to be the ones getting yeah, eaten by the yeah, lionesses. Yeah, so there's, yeah. a, you know, you can see why coming up with some solution to make sure you don't all just bash into each other and you know fall sh- on the I ground. Should, I should note that it's probably not lionesses <laughs> yeah. because it was roe deer in, yeah. uh, in Europe. because yes. uh, that really would freak them out. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice stuff. Thank you. Very nice stuff. Thank you. Uh, now, uh, for those of you who haven't noticed by the uh, incredible weather in Melbourne, um, and I know there's a lot of people listening from outside. Of Melbourne, but um, it has been a bit uh, stormy here, mm. and uh, more so up the coast, of course, with some deadly weather um, up and down the east coast. Basically, uh, the, the, it's being referred to as the Super El Nino. The Super Ooh, El Nino wow. is pretty much over. So, you know, this is this hot region of um, ocean temperatures and so forth that we sometimes see. 
and it affects you know parts of um, the Americas and parts of Australia pretty substantially. And we've seen this before in, in droughts and so you know the ten years sort of drought that we had here in Australia. But of course, sometimes what happens is when you leave the El Nino sort of behind, you get its baby sister, La Nina. Mm-hmm. Um, and that sort of leads to vast quantities of precipitation. Mm-hmm. And there's a whole lot yep. of people on our alpine, you know, communities going, holy crap, if it rains, the snow gets washed away. What are we going to do? Yeah. Fire <laughs> up those snowmakers. Um, <laughs> <laughs> but, um, but it looks like, um, La Nina is now more likely. There's apparently a 75% chance that will occur. And okay. we're sort of, I think we're already sort of starting to see, um, some of that. So, and that of course has some pretty big effects, um, because uh, I mean, we see a lot more rainfall here in Australia, mm. but in South That's America, right. um, you know, it can cause quite substantial droughts mm. and, um, throughout Southeast Asia actually you get in- increased rainfall yeah. and, um, the sort of Atlantic hurricane season can be intensified a bit. So it's a, it's a pretty big, mm. um, effect. And, and the massive, uh, La Nina that we've just had, of course, has, you know, changed the sort of temperature um, across the mm. globe in many regards. And if you add climate change to that, you get this sort of su- super scenario which has occurred, which is pretty bad. So mm. anyway, it's all, uh, it's all in the weather. Hey, I saw this. I, I didn't have time to read this all, but I saw this amazing... Um, uh, cat video. A bit of cat, video. <laughs> um, cat video coming out of, um, I think it is, uh, where is in Iceland, where, you know, they've got a lot of, uh, sort of geothermal stuff and that going on in Iceland. But one of the things they've been doing is testing over the last couple of years whether they could pump the CO2, um, that comes out of their geothermal production plants into lava. And I've always said lava is a, Ooh, it's really untapped. is a solution to many. <laughs> yeah, it is, it is. And then basically what happens is they literally turn the CO2 into, into rock. Wow. And it's a storage mechanism which they're finding is is really cool. That's so, very wow. cool. So it's like soda um, stream with lava. Yeah. Exactly. Um, so let's find some lava I here want. in Australia. There's Hot rocks. You know, let's start digging, folks. Um, get out there, dig, find yourself some <laughs> Let lava, us know. and uh, and we can do it. But this is really interesting because you know there's a lot of um, different types of sequestration of, of CO2 going on around the world, um, and whenever you hear them, they're often about you know subsurface pumping and stuff. And to me, it sounds a bit temporary. Mm. But rocks, they don't feel so temporary. No. That's a bit more long-term. So it's, mm. it's interesting. We'll maybe talk about it in another show. Nice one. Uh, we're going to go and uh, listen to a track, and we'll be back in just a few moments with a guest talking about asthma. Now, we've talked about that a lot on the show before with kids, but today we're going to talk a bit more about what it's like in adults. You're listening to Einstein and Go-Go on 3 Triple R. 3 Triple Now, in the studio, we have Professor Joe Douglas. Now, Joe is the head of the Department of Clinical Immunology and Allergy at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and an honorary clinical professor at the University of Melbourne. Joe, welcome to the studio. Hi, Shane. How are you? Good. Now, you work in the area of asthma or severe asthma and and allergic diseases. First of all, those two, is asthma an allergic disease or is it something different? So many people with asthma have allergies as a, as a trigger. So we know in our community nearly half of the population is sensitised to, to allergens. By that I mean people make allergic antibodies in mm-hmm. their system to commonly 
uh, common environmental substances to which they're exposed. Yep. And if they didn't have that allergic antibody, that substance wouldn't harm them. So house dust mite is harmless unless your body recognises it as an allergen. Mm. So you know in, say, kids or younger people with asthma, those under 30, about 70% of them are sensitised to a common environmental substance like house dust mite is a big one there, but mm. also grass pollens, animal danders like cat, and they're major triggers for some. But that's not the case for all. And mm. so one of my areas of research is in those who have, say, severe asthma, which is only perhaps 1 in 20 of yep. those with asthma, yep. and of those, less of them are probably allergic, but some still are, and it's a really good thing to target if you want to try and modify mm. their disease. Now, now, tell us a bit about asthma, because we, we all are aware of, we've probably seen someone who's had asthma, the difficulties in breathing, mm. but what's happening in the body when, when you have an asthma attack? Sure. So when a person has asthma, the problem is that their airways narrow, and that means they actually have a lot of trouble getting generally air out, and when it's very severe air in and out so they um their lungs become they their lungs become expanded as they try as it sort of accumulates air and so they're working at a at a high volume and they get a wheeze that mm, yeah <laughs> when they wheeze yeah. out which you can hear and that's because the airways are narrowed and they're narrowed for two reasons one is that the muscles around the air tubes constrict and so that makes the airways narrower and that's easily reversible with some short-acting uh, beta agonists, some short-acting treatments for asthma. But the main problem and the reason why the airways close so significantly is inflammation, that is swelling on the inside of the airways okay. because of an infiltration of cells into the airways, inflammatory cells in the airways. And that really causes both the thickening of the airways, which leads to much more chronic narrow, narrowing of the airways, and also leads to changes in the airways that we call remodeling, so the airways become fixed and less, less, uh, less variable in their obstruction. Mm. And so that yeah, is what leads to more chronic asthma, the chronic changes and the severe changes of asthma. Uh, overall, there seems to have, and I'm just sort of speaking about what I've heard, but there seems to have been over the last decade or two quite a, an incredible um, improvement in the way asthma is treated and, and how, how sufferers are are getting along with their lives and so forth. Is that just true for the milder cases of asthma? Or have we also made big strides with the severe cases as well? I think that's a really good a really good point. I think asthma is a wonderful public health success story. If we go back 30 years, there were three times the number of people dying mm. of asthma, and right. particularly in younger age groups where there's just no confusion about the diagnosis mm. compared to now. So we look at now, it's still 400 people or so die of asthma every year in Australia, which is too many, but um, at least that's less than what it was. But the, And there are preventable features around that, around treatment and so on. And so treatments have really improved. The, the inhaled treatment of preventers which, which combine a corticosteroid together with a long-acting beta agonist, that is a relaxant of the muscles in the airways, are really incredibly effective. And whether it's that or better delivery of treatment or people actually taking their treatment, but something's made a huge difference to reduce hmm. overall this, um, the mortality from asthma. But while asthma emissions are high and, and indeed the prevalence in the community, number of people with asthma in the community is incredibly high. About hmm. 1 in 10 people it's have asthma, hmm. which makes it one of our most common chronic diseases and so mm. it's not surprising if you've got so many people with the disease that some of them have it very severely mm. and are at risk of death and hospital admission and exacerbations and all the um, accrual of disability that occurs with a chronic illness and and when we when we talk about that group that has severe do they have other comorbidities as well i mean are they people who have severe you know diabetes or or is it or are there a group of very healthy otherwise people who have severe asthma there's always there's always a range in that regard um in younger people with severe asthma 
people, they can just have severe asthma and not mm-hmm. a lot else. But you're right that there is accruing disability. So things like obesity can mm-hmm. be associated with severe asthma, as can um, cigarette smoking or other inhalational smoking injury and things that can both exacerbate asthma but also lead to chronic airway changes and lung changes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then there are other comorbidities or diseases that occur perhaps in concert with some of the treatments we have to use for severe asthma. So the big one there is the effects of long-term oral use of corticosteroids, mm, so right. long-term steroid treatment, which is what we use to prevent very severe asthma or exacerbations or flare-ups of asthma. But unfortunately, that can have a long-term accrual if a person's needing to do it yeah. a lot. Um, and those things relate to obesity, bone thinning, cataracts, those sort of things that are all associated with high long-term oral steroid use. Pretty nasty. So I've got two questions. The first one is, what actually defines severe asthma? Is that somebody who's non-responsive to normal treatments or has asthma more frequently or, you know, what is what is severe asthma? And also I've heard that asthma is far more prevalent in Australia than in some other developed countries. Do we know why that's yeah. the case? Well, let's go with the first one. So the definition of severe asthma is well established and it's people who fail to be controlled. So let's first of all say what controlled is. And controlled of asthma means that you have symptoms less than twice a week and you have no severe flare-ups of asthma. And that can be usually achieved by inhaled medications only. So those good preventive medications that I spoke about for most will control their asthma really well. So asthma that fails to be controlled or is at risk of exacerbating despite maximum doses of inhaled treatment generally forms in the realm of severe asthma. And we know that's probably about 1 in 20 to 1 in 50 people who have asthma fall into that severe group. So they're not well controlled with good inhaled medications and they'll require frequent bursts of oral uh, or systemic corticosteroids to control their disease. So that's the first um, definition. So that's the first question. So it does happen and it's common enough because the disease of asthma overall is so common. And then you said, is asthma more common in Australia? And that's a really good question. I don't know that it is in terms of first world prevalence. If you compare us to places like the UK and the US, uh, then asthma is um, probably about similar prevalence, one in 10, one in 12. But what is different is our mortality. So whilst our asthma mortality is the same as England and the UK, we have much higher mortality than places like France, Japan, Germany that have a similar prevalence. Mm -hmm. So despite having a first world health system, we're not doing as well with asthma Mm. overall as we might do. Mm. And that's a really good question. What might happen, how we might address that. Joe, I want to go back to the beginning a bit. Um, You mentioned that that, asthma is is triggered by some sort of sensitisation to some sort of whatever it might be, um, and commonly dust mites. do we understand why that happens and how that happens, that process of sensitisation? Because it seems to me that if you can get to the, to the core of that, you, you're making a big step forward. Yeah, so the, the pathways that are involved in allergic sensitisation are also in, in other parts of the immune system evolved have evolved to fight parasites so it's a eosinophilic inflammation that is an, an inflammation that particularly utilizes a certain pathway of the immune system we don't know why allergies are more common in first world countries but they are definitely a first world problem mm. and you can look at all the things that go with being a first world country to look at reasons that might lie behind that from from our diet from our the microbiome that the microbi- yeah. the yeah, microbiome to um to vitamin d exposure mm. to infection that we don't get bacterial infections. You know, we know nasty bacterial infections like TB are, are pretty protective for the development of allergic sensitization. We know that firstborns in families who have less infections are more likely to be allergic than second and third and subsequent children in a family. So infections are protective, not that you want to have infections. There's yes. been discussion about <laughs> antibiotics and, you know, mm. are we using too many antibiotics? And, and that can be so, both for affecting the microbiome but also preventing bacterial infections. Mm. And even severe viral infections, 
seem to be protective. So hepatitis A exposure early in life is protective. Mm. So there's a whole lot of stuff mm. that can mitigate against um, the occurrence of allergic disease, which is switched on in first world countries that doesn't is not the case in third world countries. And third world countries or countries that have um, have been less civilised and are quickly catching up, like East Germany, show a very rapid rise in the rates of wow. allergic diseases, both asthma but also rhinitis and eczema yeah. um, and allergies, um, <laughs> along with that civilization change. Yeah. Mm. Now, now, Joe, just before we let you go, I want to talk about the fact that you're you're working on some... You're, you're involved in some trials at the moment we for are. severe ex, ex, uh, es, asthma. Jeez, <laughs> oh, God. You're, you're doing fine. Oh, <laughs> we're talking um, where, um, where you're showing some real really good positive results yeah. initially. Tell us about that. So I'd really like to, um, uh, it seems to me that a lot of people with severe asthma think that there's not a lot more that can be done and it's a fantastic time to be working in this area for me because some of the new drugs, particularly monoclonal antibodies and things that are being used therapeutically in defined subgroups of severe asthma have terrific outcomes and I think it's really good to wake up uh, the community and people and doctors to say there's a lot that can be done for severe asthma and particularly in this environment with so many clinical trials of fantastic hmm. new molecules and things are really opening opportunities for people to do very much better than they might have done and for some it's life changing and it's wonderful for me as a clinician to see mm. that in patients. Yeah it's fantastic. Yeah. I think it's, uh, it's very important also to put this in context and that is you know you mentioned about 400 deaths a year in Australia um, if we think about the road toll mm. and how much money we put into that similar figures mm. um, I think areas like asthma research and so forth could get a lot more based on you know and it's not a, it's not a fun death it's a it's an awful awful scenario for it's people awful, with these conditions. It's awful disability for people, yeah. long-term chronic, mm. and it prevents them, it impacts on their life, they're frightened to go away. One of the things people tell me, they're frightened to go on holidays because they've got to be near a doctor in a mm. hospital if they've got severe asthma. Mm. So it really impacts on people's quality of yeah. life. Yeah. Joe, we hope uh, the trials go well and, and more Thank of you. these uh, very interesting new drugs are, are successful. Thanks so much for chatting to us Thank today. Thank you so much for the opportunity. Uh, Joe Douglas is a professor and head of the Department of Clinical Immunology and Allergy at the Royal Melbourne Hospital and an honorary clinical professor at the University of Melbourne. You're listening to 3 we're going to take a break for some music. Three. Triple. You're listening to Triple R, right? And this is Einstein and Gogo. It's a science program. So we have yet another scientist in the studio. We have Craig Dent. He's from the School of Biological Sciences at Monash University. Craig, welcome. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to have you in here. You're working on well, plants and flowering plants in particular and what regulates them in terms of when to flower and so forth. Let's start, first of all, with that, because I've never really thought about that. I thought, you know, it gets warm, flower pops out. Um, but there, there's a very sophisticated mechanism behind that, isn't there? Uh, yeah. So, like you said, you, you don't often think about it. When you think of people, it gets hot, you go in shade, you <laughs> run away, essentially. <laughs> but plants don't have that option. So they need to be able to react fairly quickly to what's going on. Mm. Um, so, yeah, we were... Finally, after a few many years of work, which I was only the very last part of, we managed to nail down this mechanism. It's really quite cool of how plants uh, are able to respond to the temperature change. Hmm. So, so in terms in terms of that, I mean, there's there's a couple of different things here because I, I know you know most flowers close up at night. Um, is that a response to the light or the temperature? Do we know? Um, I'm not actually sure. I believe the previous guest was talking about clock genes. Yeah. Um, so I'd, I reckon it probably has something to do with that. What okay. we're specifically looking at is when in the life cycle do these plants begin to flower. Right. So this is the more 
constant temperatures, you know, we're moving into autumn or, or whatever and the plant's been alive for X number of years and or months, <laughs> depending on the plant yeah. days. Uh-huh. Yeah. <laughs> and then all of a sudden they start to flower. So there, there's a chemical trigger or something that occurs there? Yeah, so what we found is that it's actually... It's kind of a dysfunctional marriage between these two quality control mechanisms inside the cells of the plants. Right. So there's one that you can kind of think of as like a book publisher for the genes. So it checks the sequence and makes sure that they make sense. And if they don't make sense, then it's destroyed. Okay. And the other, you can kind of think of like a book editor. So it's deciding what's included or excluded in the final product. Hmm. And what we found is that how these things are coming together is that uh, the editor is at high temperatures, suddenly, instead of publishing one book, is publishing 30, and almost none of them make sense. So all of a sudden, the publisher comes along and says, none of this is any good, removes most of it, and then there's not enough signal to tell the plant to stop flowering. So as the temperature increases, the signal goes down, and then we get flowering. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. And, I mean, that that to me says, if we understand this, that, that, you know, I'm a human... I like to control things immediately. You know, that's, that's what humans do. Um, but, you know, there's a, there's a lot of stuff going on at the moment in terms of food production in the world and with changes in climate and changes in temperature in various regions. Does this mean we'll be able to, in, in, and I'm talking genetically modified crops here, but, you know, that's, that's a big part of the world's, world's um, food supply. Will we be able to sort of change things so that, you know, plants that we thought wouldn't flower, wouldn't work, wouldn't be pollinated in certain environments will now be able to do that? Can we, is that the sort of control we're leading to? Yeah, so that's a while down the road. And, but if we're talking hypothetically, yes, you could convince a plant that's growing at 27 degrees that it's actually nice and comfortable at 23 degrees. Mm. Um, the plants that we work with, Arabidopsis, they're kind of closely related, well, small plants that are related to tomatoes. So the similar mechanisms should exist in both. Okay. And, I mean, how do you sort of pull that bit out? I mean, I always, I, I always imagined that you guys have a blender somewhere in the lab. But, <laughs> but, but, you know, like, this is obviously a very small chemical, a very small part of the plant that's doing this. I mean, how do you isolate that in the laboratory? Yeah, so identifying this mechanism was kind of a collaboration across a lot of different techniques. So we used traditional molecular techniques to identify and sequence what was being produced by the gene. Mm-hmm. Um, I was involved in the computational analysis of um, data from the plants at low temperature and high temperature and trying to figure out which parts of the DNA were responsible for these decisions being mm-hmm. made by the editor. And then we also look at uh, mutant plants that don't have the publishing mechanism and on top of that, natural variation in wild populations that are disrupted at certain parts of this gene that we looked at. Hmm. And just on the computational part, because obviously that's the bit you've been doing, yeah. I mean, how much data were you talking about? To, like, I always think, you know, these sorts of things, I'm a physicist, so for me, you know, it can't, surely can't be as much as what the astronomers use. But, but <laughs> when, when, I, when I hear about some of these sequences, you know, they keep uh. ripping out war and peace, it's really blah, blah, blah. Um, you know, how, how much data do you have to sift through to pull out those sort of few, few bits and pieces that tell you the story? So each condition, two conditions, we had three replicates, and each replicate when it's compressed down and stored as small as we can is probably the size of 
a season of Game of Thrones on a computer. <laughs> well, <laughs> multiply it out, yeah. Okay. So, uh, are we talking <laughs> HD or are we talking... About... <laughs> uh, no, no, look, um, apologies to the three people who are listening who haven't seen Game of Thrones. Um, <laughs> there's always a couple. <laughs> yeah, it takes up a lot of room on the computer. They know uh, that. You know, someone, someone said this to me the other day and I said, yeah, I'm one of the three people who've actually read the Bible um, in, in the country. The others... Anyway, uh, moving, moving on. <laughs> Let's not go there. Craig, look, it's, it's really interesting stuff. Thanks so much for coming in and, and hopefully um, the more we learn, the more we'll be able to adapt some of the crops and so forth because it's something that, you know, obviously you, know, you hear about vineyards and so forth just moving locations because yeah. they won't be able, you know, they're in these very specific regions. I, I, I suppose you must find plants that only flower in very sort of limited latitudes. Is that is that right? Uh, yes, I believe so. Um, and also say, across a mountain slope as the temperature yeah. changes. Yeah. So there are a lot of applications in a lot of different contexts that you might find this research being useful. Yeah. Look, great stuff. Um, Craig Dent from the School of Bio- Biological Sciences at Monash University, thanks very much for coming in. Thanks so much for having me on. We're going to take a break for some music and we'll be back in a moment with our final guest for today who is also a PhD student from the Centre of Excellence for Environmental Decisions. You're listening to 3 Triple R. 3 Triple Uh, in the studio, we have Skip Woolley, who's from the School of Biosciences at the University of Melbourne and a PhD student and part of the ARC Centre of Excellence for Environmental Decisions, SEED. Yeah, I like to point that out. I like that. Yeah. Skip, how are you going? Very good, thank you. Thanks for coming in. Now, you also, you did uh, Dr. Jen's science communication course, so anything that happens in the next 10 minutes is her fault. <laughs> That's all right, it's all on her, so hopefully, <laughs> hopefully it all worked <laughs> out. Uh, was it a good course? It was very good, yeah. It's one of I've, heard some, I've heard some things. I've heard some things. Are they, is it all true? Or? She's sometimes a bit tough. She, like, <laughs> you know, if you don't get it right, all she right. comes down hard on you. Like. <laughs> You don't get it right. Wow, really? She's black repeat, and white. Repeat, repeat. Yeah, black and white. Uh, look, it's... Uh, yes, Do you notice yeah, I'm yeah. staying completely silent? We, we did until then. Yeah. Yeah. That's because he's preaching to the choir in this room. We, we know you. Uh, now, you have been looking at all the stuff down in the deep, deep, dark oceans. Now, this I have to say, this is one of the most fascinating areas for me because despite what Jen said about pristine uh, environments before, this is an area that we haven't quite managed to totally screw up yet and we really don't know much about it. I mean, give us a bit of a flavour of, of sort of the, the oceans in terms of how much we know, because we, we hear these statistics from time to time about just how little we understand, especially the deep stuff. Yeah, so the deep sea makes up about, or the deep sea floor, deep mm-hmm. sea sea floor makes up about 70% of the world's, I guess, surface. sea surf- yeah. surface. Wow. So it's probably the largest ecosystem on the planet. But We've only actually quantitatively explored about 1% of it. Okay. So we have very limited, I guess, understanding of uh, the species that occur there and the diversity that's there. Mm. And so what my research has been looking at is taking these some global data sets that have been developed by one of my supervisors, um, Tim O'Hara, at the Univ- at Museum Victoria, um, and has looking at the distribution of species across the globe hmm. um, for deep sea. So we have the, a data set that's made up of ophiroids and they're a, 
uh, called brittle stars, commonly called brittle stars, and they're closely related to sea stars, and they're ubiquitous in the deep sea. So mm-hmm. they kind of they occur from the shallows. You might find them in a rock pool under a rock. Yeah. All the way down to like hadal trenches. So. And they've got those little hairy legs. They've got like a little round bit in the middle. <laughs> yeah, that's right. Very long legs. They're hairy because I've got a couple in my they're marine beautiful. tank at home, and my son's always picking them up. Are they poisonous? No. It's <laughs> <laughs> good to know. I think you would have worked that out. I'm not putting my hand in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but these things, I mean, these things seem to be everywhere. I mean, is that what you guys find? That they're just yeah, they're so, all over the place. So the deep sea is really hard to, I guess, survey because it's it's very far away from mm. you know where we live, and so you have to go to go collect animals in deep sea. You have to go out in uh, big vessels that take do quantitative surveying that takes you know an hour to take one sample, mm. and this repeat kind of guess surveying effort takes a long time and lots of money and so but what we find is every time we go and survey the deep sea we find brittle stars and so they become a good taxa for looking at patterns of diversity because one they're kind of everywhere so we mm-hmm. have an understanding of the different species that occur in different parts of the world yep. but also they're not too diverse which can sound a bit funny but from a taxonomic point of view it means that we can put names on all the species mm. we find. Mm. Right. And so right. so people like Tim O'Hara have a very good understanding of the taxonomy, and mm. so then they can then know pretty much any ophiroid or brittle star they find, they can then um, put a name on it. Mm. Where, where do the brittle stars typically fit in an ecosystem? Are they How close to the top of the food chain are they, for want of a better uh, description? Um, so probably towards the bottom end. Right. <laughs> <laughs> so they're, they're like... They often live on the seafloor and they, they eat the tritus feeders, so they eat other animals or they eat like dead carbon, stuff. dead stuff. Yeah. So they're kind of the, the, you know, the garbage compactors of the ocean. Nice. So they, so they, uh, do a good job of cleaning up stuff. And, mm. yeah. and, and when you look at this data, I mean, what do you see in terms of the distribution? Because one might imagine it's just, you know, continuous everywhere. They're just mm. everywhere. But there, mm. are there sort of areas where there are sort of big changes in populations of these brittle sea stars? Yeah. So what our research found was that, um, there's kind of two uh, conflicting patterns in the deep sea. So in, I guess, classic macroecology or big large-scale patterns of diversity, we have this, what they call latitudinal gradient diversity. So you have high diversity in low latitudes or the tropics. So if yep. you think of where there's high species richness, lots of species, they're often areas where it's warm, so the tropics. So you have As I say, the snorkeling zones. Exactly. Galopolis Islands, all those areas where people like to go snorkeling. There exactly. seems to be a lot of stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and so we in the deep ocean, we find a similar pattern for the, the shallower parts of the deep ocean. So from what they call the shelf, which is about zero to 200 metres, and the, the upper slope, which is about 200 to 2,000 metres, mm-hmm. we find a similar pattern. So we find that we have peaks of diversity in these low latitude areas or these tropical areas so we have higher rich species richness so there's more species there mm-hmm. but then as we start getting moving deeper into the deep ocean it starts becoming homogeneously cold or cold everywhere so you have a much smaller temperature gradient mm. so it's kind of it's kind of cold everywhere yeah, so yeah and so this pattern starts to disappear and we start seeing higher uh peaks of diversity in temperate regions mm. okay mm-hmm. so okay. places like southern australia or maybe the Atlantic, Northern Atlantic. And this is what we've found in our paper is this cor- is correlated with areas where we have higher chemical input into the oceans. So, okay. so at the surface of the oceans, you have 
essentially in areas of high upwelling, which are often in temperate regions. You have phytoplankton that forms on the surface of the oceans, and they form there and they have a good time because of all the food and nutrient mm. in the water. And then it dies and it sinks to the seafloor. And this um, this sinking to the seafloor then creates food on the mm. on the on the bottom of the oceans for these animals mm. to survive on. And so, what we found in the paper is that we have that these two conflicting patterns, but we found that it's it seems to be these patterns are driven by energy input. So in the shallow parts of the oceans, it's energy from the sun, so thermal energy. Yeah. And then yeah. as you get deep into the ocean, it's energy from chemicals, right. so yeah. from food. And what about if you were to, <clears throat> you know, just chucking it out there, overlay a map of the tectonic plates of the planet with with this data? I mean, because there is such a, a, a chemical intensity around uh, the plate boundaries in, in the very deep oceans. I mean, uh, do you think there would be regions there where you'd find, you know, quite vast numbers of populations of, of these brittle sea stars and other, and other things? Yeah, sure. So, um it's slightly different, but they have in those areas there's things called like hydrothermal vents mm. or methane seeps, and these are like sp- specific types of communities where there's certain bacteria that can basically convert chemical energies into like energies they can use, yeah. and yeah. they can then things feed on the bacteria, mm. and then you get these kind of like little ecosystems that survive off chemicals coming yeah. out of the ground. Yeah. So, given that you guys are, are getting a, a good picture now of of where these these Organisms and ecosystems are, etc. And going back to your to your to your, uh, your group, what sort of environmental decisions does that data inform? Yeah. So, and is anyone listening? <laughs> that's a different question, yes, I think. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, that's part of one of the focuses of this project through Seed is to look at how we can then use these patterns to inform conservation. And so, for instance, currently the um, UN is well currently doing an initiative called. Um, biodiversity beyond national jurisdictions. Uh, and so the deep sea, a lot of the deep sea is in international waters. Yes. Mm. yes so course. how you manage these areas is different from how you would manage an area within a country because how they're governed is very complex. Mm, yeah. So maps like we've produced in this work can potentially help organisations like the UN make decisions on areas that they might choose to conserve or, like, say, close down fisheries or prevent mining. Mm. So has your, your work also made a really important contribution to um, us understanding more about human impacts in the sense that I think people have always thought... I mean, one of the problems with conservation in the sea is that people always thought, oh, well, we, you know, it's out there, we're not doing anything to it, so it's mm. fine. And, of course, mm. that's not true. And that's mm. even more um, at risk to think, well, the deep sea, God, that's so far from us, we can't possibly <laughs> be having any impact there, it's fine. But, of course, if what's happening on the surface is eventually sinking down and and um, causing these patterns that you're seeing. Does that sort of mean we are still having you know, yeah, an effect? Yeah, so, so there's lots of... There's some very good research coming out recently that's looking at the effects of, I guess, anthropogenic pressures, so fisheries or mining on the deep sea, but also climate pressures. So, mm. for instance, one good example is um, deep-sea corals. They need certain chemicals to form their skeletons. And then as the temperatures... As the sea temperatures warm, the areas where they can actually get these chemicals is basically shrinking. So they're kind of like between like a, a vice, so they're kind of getting pushed out of their mm-hmm. habitat. So like equivalent to animals being pushed off tops of mountains, yeah. um, deep sea creatures are being squashed in a little area they can actually live and survive in. Mm. So It's super in- interesting stuff. I mean, uh, do, do you have a feel for, you've looked at one particular species, um, the brittle 
sea stars, which are, you know, they're, they're the cockroaches of the, <laughs> the sea. I don't know, they just seem to be everywhere. You know, whenever I've, I've, I've got live rock in that for my fish tanks, there seems to be a hundred of them in there. They're just everywhere. They're fascinating. Um, but how do you think that translates to, to other species? Is, is it a good, sort of indicator you mentioned before it was good because it you know wasn't that diversified but what about species where there is greater diversification do you think it will sort of mimic in those same regions that kind of distribution or is there reason to expect it it won't so we think that it would like so we're using it as a surrogate for mm. these other groups because i guess we have tim has spent 20 years building this data set yeah he has a very good understanding of these animals and so there are other people around the world working on other taxa so for instance different crustaceans or corals mm. and we do find in they've obviously got data sets in smaller i guess parts of the world so we they have finding some um, similarities between the two but there will be differences but i guess once we have global data sets for different groups we can then my future direction in this research would be then how compare where they where they differ so there yeah. might be parts of the ocean where there's like a sweet spot for all groups mm. and so that might be even more important for conservation mm. is it true you can chop an arm off a brittle sea star and grow another brittle sea star is that true i don't know yeah. <laughs> yeah. i don't know right now your son is trying that <laughs> i may have asked because of a historical event uh, no not, not deliberately but these things happen um it 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 fascinates me with these particular critters though you can find them in the shallows um, yeah, and right. you can also find them at these incredible pressures. Are, are they the same types? Or are they just that, um, you know... Swiss Army animals. Yeah, they're yeah. just <laughs> a, that amazing that they can do all these sorts of things, or are they completely different when, depending so on where you find them? There's different groups. So basically, there's kind of a... So if you can think of, like, by geography of the worlds, so you have different groups of species, like, say, Australia has a unique fauna compared to, say, Asia or yep. parts of Asia. And so the same thing happens in the deep sea. So the shallower parts almost have their own unique fauna compared to the deep sea mm, fauna. Right. Yep. And so you have these different groups of species um, exist. They're all of the same brittle stars, yeah. but they're all different species of brittle stars. Mm. Does that make sense? Mm. It's fascinating stuff. Mm. Uh, Skip, thanks so much for coming and chatting to us, and it's great to see some of this uh, data, especially coming out of the museum where you know there's the collections that have been there for a long period of time and big data sets. It's good to see some of this stuff being used in a, in a way that might... In, have some impact on environmental decisions of the future. So thanks for chatting to us. Great. Thanks for having me. Skip Woolley from the School of Biological Sciences, a PhD student with the Australian Research Council Centre of Excellence for Environmental Decisions at the University of Melbourne. Well, we are almost out of time, gang. I hate to say it, but uh, it goes, goes fast. fast. It certainly does. Chris KP, thanks so much for coming in. Absolutely, absolutely. Both, both my pleasure. <laughs> oh, you know, it's always so exciting to have you in. I said it with a straight face. Oh, that was okay. very sweet of you. <laughs> uh, Dr. Jen, uh, you haven't coughed for the full hour. Congratulations. No, no, yeah. no, I'll just cough later now. Yeah, cough your guts out when you leave the studio. <laughs> That's right. Liv's been doing our Twitter feed. I think this is our last week with her as a 20-year-old. Yeah. Oh, boy. She's growing up. She's growing up. up, our little Liv. Yeah, she was born on the show. People remember she was born on the show. That was an show. amazing recording. Yeah, it was, a, it was incredible. You'd have to go back through the archives, but you will find it. Uh, anyway, I'm not sure if Liv will be in next week. <laughs> <laughs> I think she may have her 21st. Anyway, I'm Dr. Shade. You've been listening to Einstein to Go Go on 3RRR. We're going to hand over now to the team from Eat It, who uh, they have a huge number of people over there in the studio today. I don't know what's going on, but they seem ready to go. Thanks again for listening. Remember, science is everywhere, and we will have a chat to you again next week. This has been a podcast from 3RRR, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. 
Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.